going through the Gospel of Mark. And today we're going to complete our study in chapter 3, so if you want to go ahead and and, uh, turn back to that passage if you're not still there. Today's passage begins and ends with Jesus' earthly, physical family, but there's a lot of things here in this chapter that we want to dive into. But first, here is the audience response part of the sermon. Can you give me the names of some of the earthly members of Jesus' physical family? Who, who are some of them? James? Gary? What'd you, pardon? You know, I know I should have worn my hearing aids. <laughs> Jude. James, Jude? Joseph, thank you. Mary. All right, that's a good one. <laughs> what, who, pardon? Joe Jr.? He's in there. Simeon? John the Baptist, his cousin? And whose sisters? Jesus, is, Jesus had sisters? Okay. All right. We're going to come back to this. Some of you have wonderful families, grew up in great homes, but some of you had pretty rough backgrounds, and I know that. I've heard your stories. Some of them are pretty awful. Uh, Some stories are marked by tragedy, some by abuse, conflict, anger, simply lack of of unconditional love. How would you like to be raised by a mother who told you from the time you were a little girl that she hated you. I know that sounds extreme, but that's within our church. I've heard some of you say that your ties to your church family are much more precious to you than your earthly family. And I, I get that. In fact, actually, this text, from beginning to end, actually moves in that direction and encourages us with a truth that's going to blossom into fruition later in the plan of God. Now, in this story, we have the intersection between Jesus' natural family and the spiritual family of God. And by the way, if your earthly natural family members are also members of your spiritual family, your eternal family, that's just the best. That's something to rejoice in. But that's not the scenario we see in this text yet. It will be later, but not yet. One of the topics that we really don't know a whole lot about, but we're always very curious about, uh, has to do with the earthly life of Jesus. What was it like uh, from from birth to age 12 in the temple, um, between age 12 in the temple when we see him there, and age 30 or so when he began Uh, his earthly ministry? What was his childhood like? What was it like to have Jesus as an older brother? James? Honest, Mom, I didn't do it. Well, who did? Um, (laughs) You know who he couldn't blame? So, (laughs) kind of a strength. What was daily life like for, for Jesus Ben Joseph? In fact, what about Joseph? What happened to him? We assume he died between the time when Jesus was 12 and age 30. And he died. But when did he die? And how did he die? And, and, and how did Mary grieve? And how did Jesus grieve? I mean, if he wept at the tomb of Lazarus, whom he was about to raise from the dead, how did he grieve over his earthly father, Joseph, when he died? And it's almost certain that Jesus would have had a hand in raising his brothers and sisters. What was it like for them to have Jesus as their older brother? Well, in, in this small story, we, we have a, a, a bit more information about Jesus' family. We're going to harvest some other things from other texts. And even here, their motivation is not clear. If you're interested in apologetics and defending the faith, one scholar Uh, made the true observation that the early church would never have invented a story that put Jesus' family in a bad light. That is is true. But the story begins in verse 21 with the statement, and when his own people heard of this, 
they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying he has lost his senses. Now here's the question. Who are they? And I know we've looked at this before. In this year of COVID, we get information from newspapers, from TV news anchors, from pundits, from people who are being interviewed. And when it comes to information about COVID, they say, and you just lose track of who they are. So exactly who was saying he has lost his senses? Is it his mother and his brothers? Mary, James, Joe Jr., Simon, and Jude, or his other more full name, Judas, not the apostle. Or does the word they refer to other people? And that is what his own people heard that others, they, were saying about their son, about their brother. The Greek text could actually go either way. But what they were saying is clear. And here it is in different translations. He has lost his senses. He is out of his mind. He's gone mad. However you render it, it means he's mentally unbalanced. So we have to begin by talking about who they are. And and in doing that, I want you to consider who the players were in this scenario. Who are the players? Well, first of all, there are the people who were benefiting from Jesus' ministry. The people, crowds who were being taught. The people who were being healed. That's the first group. Secondly, there are the synagogue rulers and leaders throughout the province of Galilee. And in these first three chapters, Jesus has been going all over Galilee and the synagogues, plural. And these, the animosity against Jesus has been building up to a very high level. He has been offending these leaders consistently. The third group, there are some new leaders who have just arrived from Jerusalem. Verse 22 tells us that they have now arrived with the new interpretation of Jesus. The official word is that he is now empowered by Satan. See, it's not enough to say he's crazy. They can't explain away the miracles. That doesn't explain the miracles. So they have to have an alternative explanation that covers the miracles. He's casting out demons by the prince of demons. So that's coming from Jerusalem. And then there's the fourth group. That's Jesus' family, Jesus' earthly family. I'm going to tell you my opinion for the, about this. And I would not die for this opinion. Okay, It is my opinion. I think they refers to the rumors being spread throughout Galilee by the Jewish authorities there. That's group two that I was talking about. Just before, Mark tells us that the bigwigs arrived and brought the even more blasphemous interpretation that he was casting out demons by Satan. From other interactions that Jesus had with his family, I don't personally believe that this is what his family thought of them of him. It was definitely not what Mary thought of him. So if, if that's right, then what were the family members thinking? Maybe it's actually a blend of motives. It may well be that James and Jude and the other brothers who do not yet have Jesus' faith, John makes it clear in John 7 that they have not yet believed, it may well be that they thought Jesus had lost it. It's also entirely possible that they had some sort of a protective motive going on because Jesus had loved them, had helped raise them, had been involved in their lives. Uh, and, and it may well be that uh, they are thinking that they want to move him to a place where he is safe. They're concerned about him. He is clearly in danger now that the Pharisees and the scribes and the, uh, um, have joined with the Herodians and now plan to kill Jesus. One scholar describes this as, quote, compassionate unbelief. They don't believe in him yet, but they're concerned about him. So it's kind of, maybe we can bring him home 
talk him out of what he's doing right now. Um, it, you know, it, maybe we can bring him outside the bullseye of the target that's on his back right now. They weren't saying, hey, he brought this on himself. He's on his own. They weren't saying that. They loved him. If they didn't, they wouldn't have come for him. It's not a matter of their reputation either. They're over in the other part of the province in Nazareth. So if, if they didn't love him, I don't think they would have come. They wanted him back. They wanted him home. I think they wanted him safe. So either they think he's become unbalanced or they know that others think he's become unbalanced or a mixture of both, but they're here and they want to get him away from the public eye at least for a while. In between. But in between the time that they left Nazareth, that's in verse 21, right? In between the time that they left Nazareth to come and get Jesus, if they could, when they, in between that time when they left Nazareth and actually arrived in Capernaum, Mark fills us in on what happened in the meantime. Jesus' enemies from Jerusalem arrived, and they have ratcheted up the slander because, as I mentioned before, saying he's crazy doesn't explain the miracles. So the now, now the official word is he's in league with Satan, empowered not by the spirit, but empowered by the devil. And then, then his mother and his sisters, I'm sorry, his mother and his brothers arrive. So I want you to get the order of things. Get the order of this now. His family leaves Nazareth. That's the first part. Then the Jewish leaders arrive from Jerusalem, and then Jesus, and Jesus teaches them about the, the people, about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus' family arrives in Capernaum. That's the sequence of the three things. Now, I want to make an observation as a, a, an old teacher. Mark records many stories like this in this pattern. It's a story within a story. There is a term for it. Intercalated pericopes. Don't you just love that? It just kind of rolls off the tongue. I have a salmon and some intercalated pericopes and carrots. Um, there, there are nine of these in the Gospel of Mark. The idea is that there is a story that begins and then it's interrupted by something very important. And then the story resumes and is concluded only it is informed by what happened in the middle. The other term that is used, which makes a whole lot more sense, they call, people call it a Markin sandwich. I like that better. A Markin sandwich. So we're looking at the two end, ends, but the middle is actually the important part, the part about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Probably the best known example of one of these Markin sandwiches is that we're going to see it later in Mark chapter 5, where uh, Jesus uh, was on his way to heal Jairus' daughter. She's a 12-year-old little girl. And on the way there, he is interrupted by a woman who has an issue of blood, an old woman. And this problem that she has had has also been for 12 years. So a female, 12 years, and then a woman with a 12-year problem interrupts him. And then he goes, uh, and then meanwhile, he, after he heals her, Jesus goes to the home of Jairus and raises her from the dead because she's, she has died in between while he was dealing with the middle part. And the whole thing is a lesson in faith. The woman had amazing faith in if she could just touch the hem of Jesus' garment. And then Jairus learned amazing lessons of faith. The whole thing, the whole thing goes together as big, a big sandwich, a big meal, a big feast of faith. So last week, Lewis focused on what we have to focus on, and that is the middle part the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. He is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Well, this is the meat part of it. And it, this is important to review because uh, Lewis did a great sermon. If you didn't hear it, you need to go back and listen to it. But just to review some of the things that he said, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not committing heinous sins like uh, 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 murder or adultery or, or committing the same sin over and over again. 
Uh, it's, it's, it's not denying Jesus multiple times, as Peter did. It's not even blaspheming Jesus and persecuting the church, as Paul did. It's not even rejecting the gospel, although it's related in this sense. Those who commit this sin have rejected the gospel. But not all those who reject the gospel commit this sin. Paul rejected the gospel. He heard it. He tortured Christians. He heard those words. And then later, he embraced it. The scope of God's grace is explicitly stated here. God forgives all sins and blasphemy. Isn't that amazing news? That is astonishing, amazing grace. Now, as Lewis said, uh, nobody who is worried about committing this sin can commit it. By definition, <laughs> the sin rules out a troubled conscience. But here's, here's what we're looking at here. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is when a person has hardened their heart to the point that even in the face of overwhelming evidence, perhaps even miraculous proof, they reject what is clear truth, and they know it to be true deep down where the Spirit does His work. The evidence for that rejection in this case is that they call it satanic. He casts out demons by the ruler of demons. But it would be, it would be kind of like this. If Saul of Tarsus, on his way to Damascus, was confronted with Jesus Christ, and he realized it is true, and if Jesus, commit, uh, Jesus presented himself to Saul of Tarsus, and he is looking at irrefutable evidence of what he now knew deep down to be true, and if he had said, no, this is a lie, that would be the sin. So anyway, that, that, is, that is the middle part of the teaching, and it's huge. And the, the meat part. How does it impact the last part about Jesus and his family? Actually, it reminds us that as humans, we are created in the image of God, and we are dealing with larger realities than we have the ability to explain or understand. We are not in control. But in Jesus, all relationships change. If we follow Jesus, if we listen to the truth, the logic, the clarity of what Jesus is claiming, if instead of resisting the wooing of the Holy Spirit, we embrace life-changing truth, those realities enrich our lives, deepen our faith, knit our lives together into the family of God, the deep family that together glorifies God, our Heavenly Father. So, now let's, let's complete this study by focusing on the last slice of the sandwich, Jesus' family. Look at verse 31. Then his mother and his brothers came. So they arrive from Nazareth, but rather than interrupt his teaching, they send someone to let him know they were here. And while standing outside, sent word to him, calling for him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, by the way, who's they? There's another they. Anyway, they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who were sitting around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, this is my brother and sister and mother. So in a way, if you look at this whole Mark and sandwich, if you look at this, this whole picture, starting with verse 20 and ending at the, at the end of verse 35, the whole thing is actually includes Jesus' three families. You've got his natural family, right? Mary, Joseph, his siblings, this, that's his natural family unit. You also have, in the middle part, his supernatural family. The Trinity is often spoken of in Scripture in family terms. Father, Son. And, and when we come into a relationship with God the Son, we are in a relationship with a triune God. And, and terms are used to describe that, like father and child and adoption and inheritance and brother and sister. 
we were created to mirror those transcendent realities. But in this passage, Jesus' supernatural family is vilified. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Jesus' earthly ministry was through the power of the Spirit. And attributing Jesus' words and miracles to Satan is a direct assault on the Spirit who calls us to himself and who regenerates us. And now we are told, so we we have Jesus' natural family, we have Jesus' supernatural family, and now we're told about a third family. Now, we're used to thinking about this, about the church, about what will become the church. We're used to, that category is not unfamiliar to us. This was new. This was a new, new teaching. And Mark hasn't mentioned it before. It's a new thing. There is a natural family, there is a supernatural family, and now there is and will be a spiritual family. Jesus identified those who are his followers as his family. And for us, this is our deep family. And in time, Jesus' natural family will join his spiritual family. So it, it, that, that's kind of the big picture of those three families in, in this sandwich. But I want to make some observations about this, I think, that are very important. First of all, I want to make some observations about Jesus' natural family, that the natural family that showed up in Capernaum. And I want to tie up some loose ends from various scriptures about them. And, and then after that, I want to look at the point that Jesus is making about our spiritual family, our deep family, the church. Uh, and, and I just want to say, it is safe to assume that Jesus doesn't like it when we mess with any of his three families. So, the natural family. Exactly who showed up from Nazareth to Capernaum? Mary and four of her five sons. Jesus was already there. What do we know about them? We'll start with Mary, because in a sense she's both the easiest and the most complicated. <laughs> both. She, first of all, we know that Early on, Mary was told that she was going to bear the Messiah. And as a young girl, she submitted to God's will for her life. As far as she knew at that time, when she said, Be it done to me according to your word, behold, the bondservant of the Lord. As far as she knew at that time, there would be no word given to Joseph. As far as she knew at that time, it would be her and this baby. As far as she knew at that time, Joseph would immediately divorce her from the betrothal. That was done. She was given no promise that Joseph would be informed, that Joseph, uh, that God would appear to Joseph. So when, when you look at that, she is a, an amazing, amazing woman. And God, in his grace, visited Joseph and brought them together. And at Bethlehem, Jesus was born. Now, if you fast forward several years to when Jesus is 12 years old, this is near the end of Luke chapter 2, uh, Jesus did not travel with Joseph's group with the men and didn't travel with Mary's group with the women and, and, and children. And they were when they arrived the first day out, they realized Jesus is not with us. They went back to Jerusalem and there they found him instructing the scribes in the temple, answering questions and asking questions. Jesus was 12 years old at the time. And Mary, not Joseph, Mary rebuked Jesus for being in the temple and and for scaring her to death, really. And and Jesus, in turn, reminded her of why he came. And then Luke tells us two things about that. It says that uh, Mary and Joseph, quote, did not understand. (laughs) Well, yeah, they, they, they were still trying to get it. Still trying to wrap their minds around who their son was and what that meant and how to raise him. The second thing that Luke tells us was, in verse 51, his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Another version says it pondered these things in her heart. So she she thinks, and by the way, it's these things, not this thing. There were lots of things about Jesus and raising Jesus that she had to reflect on and, and, and think about. Every mother is tasked with the birth and survival of children from infancy 
to maturity, all the way through childhood to adulthood. Every parent struggles with the question of when to release them to their own accountability. Every parent struggles with that. Every parent struggles with what level of maturity. Where in that progress of maturity do you let go? Where do you stop interfering and allow them to pay the tuition of their own bad choices? Where, where do you stop in that process? And, and how do you do this when your child is God's son? How do you navigate that? There were a lot of things for her to ponder. Because for years, they had, there had been no further revelation to Mary about this ongoing struggle. And what about Joseph? Joseph actually disappears from Scripture after that. After having raised Jesus to age 12, apparently he was around long enough to have a full family. But we have to speculate that he did die. He would have been older than Mary to have been established enough to have been betrothed to her. But at some point, Mary lost her husband. And at some point, the children in that family, including Jesus, lost their earthly father. When Jesus was at the wedding at Cana, Mary was in, in some way in charge uh, and came to Jesus and asked him to fix the problem with the wine supply. Remember that? Jesus chastised her and told her his time had not yet come. And I don't know what she expected him to do or what that exchange looked like or the tone of voice back and forth. But Mary went and told the servants, you do whatever he tells you. And then Jesus performed what actually was uh, his first uh, miracle. The point I'm getting at is that Mary had a learning curve, even about her own son, as do we all have learning curves when we commit our lives to Jesus. And let's be honest about this. Mary would be the last person to place herself on a pedestal. She was a human being like the rest of us who recognized her need for a Savior. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, not theirs or yours. I need atonement. My sins need to be forgiven. She's a normal human being who believed in Jesus, very much like John the Baptist, who was also a relative. Remember when, when John had doubts about Jesus because Jesus didn't do exactly what John thought he should do? And he sent his disciples to Jesus, and Jesus told his disciples, you, you go tell John this. And he quoted Isaiah. And then he said, tell John, this is what is happening. And they went back to John and said, got it. He understood. His expectations were different than the reality of what God's plan looked like when it unfolded. But Mary didn't fully understand God's plan either. And she had to grow in her faith and in her understanding, just like the forerunner did. So, I don't know if you remember this very sweet scene at the cross when uh, Jesus saw his mother and saw John. He said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. John 19. What that meant was that Mary moved from Nazareth to Capernaum and lived out the rest of her life with John's family. Now, I mentioned Mary earlier had, was there with four of her five sons. I don't know if that raised an eyebrow for many of you. Roman Catholic theology affirms the doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary, that she never had relations with Joseph at all. She is the Blessed Virgin, a model for nuns, and so on. So the other children in the house, who, where were they from? Well, the explanation is they were from Joseph's first marriage. Well, Scripture never mentions anything like that, Scripture does say, quite the contrary, Luke, M.D., tells us that Mary brought forth her firstborn, not her only begotten, her firstborn son. In Galatians 1, Paul calls James 
the Lord's brother. And if he were not related through Mary, they wouldn't have had any physical relation at all, right? They wouldn't even be stepbrothers if it were from Joseph with a a previous marriage. So anyway, uh, he is called there the Lord's brother. I want you to listen to an important verse. Matthew 13, verses 55 and 56. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph, that's Joe Jr., and Simon and Judas or Jude? Are they not here with us? And are not all his sisters with us? And the Greek language has a word for both, which is not used here. Both means two. All means three or more. So Jesus is one of at least eight children, maybe more. But at this point, John 7 tells us, none of his brothers believed in him. His parents did, although their knowledge was limited and fragmented. And and I think, as I mentioned before, his brothers loved him and were concerned for him, concerned for his his safety, but they were skeptics. Maybe they took their cue from their next-to-oldest brother, James. Exactly how much had Mary and Joseph told the rest of the children about Jesus' birth? You ever wondered that? We don't know. But honestly, would you have believed it? So, in sum, Jesus had a physical family of believing parents, one deceased, and at least for right now, unbelieving siblings. And, and by the way, here's another loose end, because I, I do want to type, I'm bringing in several things here. Why didn't the sons, why didn't Jesus commit Mary to one of the sons? I'm speculating. That's all it is, speculation. But my speculation is that Jesus knew all things, including the future ministries of his brothers and their dangers. He knew that after all the events of the book of Acts, John would live out the bulk of his life in Capernaum in relative peace until near the end of his life when he would be arrested. He was the longest-lived apostle. So Jesus was providing for his earthly mother. Now, back to Mark 3. How does Jesus respond when they tell him his family is outside? Well, that, that takes a second to the very point that Jesus is making about his spiritual family, his deep family. This is what he says. Here, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, this is my brother and sister and mother. God has created a new family, the church. And Jesus is pointing towards a new reality that will eventually become his own bride. The church, the family of God, your spiritual family, your your spiritual family, yours, mine. And I want you to notice the inclusiveness and the exclusiveness of what he says. The inclusiveness, whoever, brother, sister, mother, whoever, all are invited. And, and let's be clear, the offer of salvation includes his natural family as well, and they will believe later. The inclusiveness is open to all, but notice the exclusiveness. Whoever does the will of God. Now, while the invitation is open to everyone, not everyone will respond. Not everyone will do the will of God. What is the will of God? There are several passages that tell us explicitly, this is God's will. This is God's will. And I'm going to go over them, uh, a few of them very briefly, but here's how to be a part of Jesus' deep family. And the first one is the most important one, is the bottom line one. God's will is that you be rescued, you be redeemed, you be saved. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, inclusive, everyone, believes exclusive in him. That's the condition. 
would not perish but have everlasting life. God didn't send his son to the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him would be saved. That's God's will. 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 through 6. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires, and that's a Greek word for wills, who desires, who wills all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. That's God's will, that we'd be saved. Here's another one. Second Peter, that, the, that last one, the first one was from Jesus, the second one was from Paul, this one's from Peter. God is not wishing that, uh, same word for will, does not will that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. The bottom line is, God's will is that we become followers of Jesus by God's grace through faith, believing in him. That's what the whole book of Romans is about. That's what the book of Hebrews is about. That's what the whole book is about. Here's another explicit passage about God's will. God's will is that we walk towards, not away from, holiness. Walk towards holiness. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Then later, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Here's another one. God's will is that you be filled with the Spirit, resulting in the fruit of the Spirit. Ephesians 5, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. So as a result of Spirit-filled people, the fruit of the Spirit promotes the flourishing of the deep family of God, the deep family, the church. God's will, here's another one, is that we serve others outside the church, not just ourselves, not just us, not just our own. 1 Peter chapter 2, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise to those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you, be put, you would put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. So live like servants. Here's, here's another one. God's will. You want to do God's will? You want to be in that claim? God's will is that you be joyful, prayerful, and thankful. First Thessalonians 5. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in every circumstance. For this is the will of God for you. Now you can enlarge the parts to the whole, the big picture, and the big picture is this. God wants the church to be the church. In contrast to blaspheming the Holy Spirit, Jesus is foreshadowing a spirit-created, spirit-led, spirit-enabled, deep family. Now, at this time, Jesus' brothers were not believers, but when they did become believers, they moved into the deep family, the bride of Christ, alongside all other believers. After the resurrection, this is Paul's clear statement about the gospel. Quote, Christ died, this is 1 Corinthians 15, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That he appeared to Cephas. He appeared to the twelve. More than 500. And get this, verse 7. Then he appeared to James. Oh. And to all the apostles. Last of all, he appeared to me, says Paul. He appeared to James. I would love to know the delight of Jesus' resurrection appearance to James and the sweet adjustment in the mind of James of all of his interactions with Jesus over the decades. Can you imagine what that would have been like as those memories of growing up with Jesus were fleshed out? And then on the day of Pentecost, 10 days after Jesus ascended, on the day of Pentecost, they were all together in an upper room. All these were in one accord, devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Acts 1.14. And at that time, Spirit came. 
church was established, the deep family of God. Years later, James became the leader of the early church. He became the leader of the deep family in Jerusalem. I mean, that's the flagship church in Jerusalem. Now, I want you to remember something. James was not from Jerusalem. He was from a different province in the city of Nazareth. He was not from there. But he was down here helping the deep body of Christ, the deep church, the deep family of God grow. James was the one who was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write the very first words of what we call the New Testament. The epistle of James was the first book written, was written before the Gospels. And here's how James, the physical brother of Jesus, begins the first words of Spirit-inspired New Testament. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 2, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. That's James, about his brother. Who else was in that upper, upper room? Ah, Jude. Jude was inspired by the Holy Spirit to pen these words. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. <laughs> wow. Not brother of Jesus Christ, bondservant of Christ. Then verse 4, our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And then the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ our Lord, all the way down to his benediction, which we're going to close with, not just yet, but shortly. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion. By the way, Jude writes about the dangers of blaspheming Satan, much less the Holy Spirit. Jesus' point is clear. Our spiritual ties in the deep family of God are the strongest ties we will ever have. They are eternal ties. They are stronger, actually, than blood ties. And we need to align our priorities with Jesus' priorities. I'm really, I'm really glad that when Jesus said that to those people in that room, behold, my brother, my, brother, my, father, uh, my mother, and my brothers and sisters, I'm really glad that when Jesus said that, Nobody raised their hand and said, well, yeah, but excuse me, I, I have problems with the preaching or with the music or with the youth program um, or, or, excuse me, the frequency of the Lord's Supper. I don't like the way you baptize. You fill in the blank. And, and I know that there are important issues that um, nudge us in one direction or another with a group of people with whom we will worship. I know that. What I'm saying is, I'm not saying those things are not important. I'm saying that once you decide and commit, commit. And make sure that... I think people that hop around are missing the deep family. They're missing out on deep roots. Don't miss out on what Jesus is anticipating here. Two weeks ago, uh, today... Betsy and I were in Florida visiting Mike and Becky. They are relatives whom we have grown to love dearly. We attended church with them. And uh, after church, a large group from the church went out to dinner. Um, there's one guy, his name was, I'm sorry, I'm going to call him Frank. It's not his name. One guy I'll call Frank. Um, wanted to carry on a conversation with me behind someone else. You, you know, there's that thing where there's someone here and then he wants to do this kind of thing and carry on a conversation. You, know, you know, it's kind of awkward. Well, he wanted to do that. And that, that's fine. And, and that's, you know, that happens with short, hey, let me tell you something quickly. Okay. But a long conversation, uh, it, it was just, a, a bit odd, 
And uh, he, he started out with, do you know why the Tennessee Vols are called volunteers? And I said, well, I think so. I guess it was the Alamo, right? And, uh, I mean, when Betsy and I lived in Texas, the people in Texas were really glad to meet people from Tennessee. There, there actually was a statehood bond with us. Uh, these were older people, I guess. Maybe they weren't around with the Alamo. I'm not sure. But there, there was kind of a you know, connection there. A, 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 there were positive, it was a positive disposition towards people from Tennessee because... As Betsy's dad used to say, if it weren't for Tennessee, there'd be no Texas. So, uh, the Alamo, right? And he said, uh, no. Uh, he proceeded to uh, command my attention and lecture me that the nickname Volunteers was actually from the Revolutionary War. And he said, I have researched this. And he proceeded to lecture, and as it turns out, I was wrong. It was not the Alamo volunteers, but Frank was wrong. It was not the Revolutionary War. It, the name was first used from the War of 1812, when 1,500 men volunteered from Tennessee to fight under General Andrew Jackson in the Battle of New Orleans. Then 24 years after that is when the Alamo took place, in 1836, and that's where Jim Bowie, Davy Crockett, and John Wayne were killed. <laughs> Ten years after that, the nickname for the volunteers was solidified after the Alamo in the Mexican-American War of 1846, when Tennessee was called on for a quota of 2,800 soldiers. That was the quota we were asked to supply, 2,800 soldiers. Instead, 30,000 Tennesseans showed up with the battle cry, remember the Alamo, because they wanted revenge for what happened to their favorite son, Davy Crockett, who had been also a United States congressman. So, all I'm saying is, I have researched this. <laughs> In that font of knowledge, Wikipedia. So this guy, Frank, instructs me about the Revolutionary War and behind, yeah, okay, I want, yeah, all right, want to eat, but uh, at any rate, after lunch, I was told, Frank is annoying. He drives everyone crazy. <laughs> he definitely was socially awkward. And, and my, first, my impression of Frank was that he is one of those people who had great uncertainty in knowing everything that you know, only better. You ever experienced anyone like that? And yet, they include him. They choose... To love him. You understand how love works biblically. You behave towards someone in loving ways, and then the emotion in time follows. You don't even have to like the person to love them. So, Mike and Becky lost their daughter last year. And uh, they are raising her daughter, their granddaughter. And they're doing a great job. But when their daughter died, the people who came around them, who surrounded them, were the people in the deep church, in their church family. So they are quite willing to be annoyed by Frank. Some of you have your deepest friendships in this room. Betsy and I have wonderful families and wonderful extended families. It's a great blessing. All, most of them are believers, not all. But not everybody has that. But we know, Betsy and I know, that if something happened to us, 
if something devastating took place, you'd be there. We just, we just know that. And we'd be there for you. And you'd be there for each other. We've seen it for decades. That's how the deep family of God is to work. That's what honors and glorifies the Father. Do we have our differences? Sure. We're not perfect. Very human, very flawed. Much of the epistles are devoted to the epistles are devoted to how to manage those differences within the deep family. Okay. But Paul made it clear. Jesus is in love with his bride, the church, and he calls on us to love what he loves. We're to grow and to work to grow into the deep family of God that Acts and the epistles describe. So that Paul says this in Ephesians 4, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all, and in all. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the deep family of God. And I pray, Lord, that anyone here who does not have that relationship with you by grace through faith in Jesus Christ would get that nailed down today and would trust in him as their Savior. Father, we pray that we would embrace what it means to enter into your deep family. Thank you for the whosoever will promise. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.